and welcome to another episode of Lord Speaker's Corner. In this episode, Lord McFall speaks to Nikki Morgan, Baroness Morgan of Coates. Baroness Morgan has held multiple roles in government, including as Secretary of State for Culture in both houses. She also chaired the Lords Committee on the Fraud Act 2006 and Digital Fraud and recently chaired the UK Commission on Covid Commemoration. Here's what she had to say. Baroness Morgan, welcome uh, to Lord Speaker's Corner. Delighted to have you. My first question is quite simple. You've had a very successful career in the city and in law. Why politics? Well, thank you very much for having me uh, this morning. And uh, well, I suspect like lots of people in both houses, I was always very interested in politics. I joined the Conservative Party when I was 16. My father, uh, who sadly died in November, was a Conservative councillor, so he got me involved. I was living leaflets for him probably from about the age of five or six. And so he could see that I was interested in politics and current affairs. I was involved through university. And yes, I was uh, busy in the city as a solicitor for 16 years, but always had that political interest. So first stood in 2001 in Islington South, um, didn't trouble the then re-elected Chris Smith as, as a Labour MP. Uh, and then in 2004, I was chosen to fight the Loughborough seat. Uh, which Stephen Dorrell had held in a previous incarnation and I had to do that twice and then was finally elected in 2010. So persistence is the name of the game, is it? I think it is and I talk a lot, I mean, you know, when I was Education Secretary I talked a lot about character and I think persistence is one of the great skills that we want everyone to develop because, uh, yeah, I think you've got to, got to keep going and, and again, I think both houses probably are full of people who have worked very, very hard to get into, into politics and have made that decision to give up doing something else in order to have a political career. In the House of Commons you were a backbencher, uh, you were uh, Secretary of State and indeed you were a chair of a committee, a very influential committee, the Treasury Committee. What's your experience there and uh, what are your highlights from that time in the Commons? Well, I mean, look, I love being a member of Parliament, um, although for various reasons I was ready to give up in 2019. Um, I, yes, I started off being a, a PPS to Lord Willits, who's now here, his name is David Willits as University's Minister. Uh, I love being a, a Secretary of State. I mean, obviously just sitting around the Cabinet table is a huge privilege. Uh, education is a difficult job, though, because everybody has a view on education. We've all been parents, we all perhaps know people who are teachers, we've all got a view about you know, our children at schools. Um, and eventually I became uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sports Secretary. But you mentioned the Treasury Select Committee, which uh, I'm looking at a previous uh, chair as well. Um, and I love that. I think that was probably the, one of the great highlights actually of my career, because as you know, you can shape that agenda. You are doing it independently of your party and government. Um, and you can make a real difference. And what's not to like about the ability to quiz the governor of the Bank of England, the head of the Financial Conduct Authority, you know, the head of, of perhaps you know, big banks, asking them some difficult questions. Um, and, and I just, I thought that was, I, I really enjoyed that period of my, my time in House Commons. Ditto, but in my case, I was right in the middle of a financial crisis. I know, exactly. Uh, but, but it was, but being able to shape that is really, really important. And in fact, you're perhaps unique in having a Secretary of State role in digital culture and media in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords. What was the difference? <laughs> well, I think they asked tougher questions in the House of Lords because obviously uh, there are real experts here. Um, yes, I must find out how many people have actually had the, exactly the same role in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Um, it was obviously a bit of a shock to come into the House of Lords and come straight to the dispatch box. Um, even my maiden speech had to be very short and given from the dispatch box. Um, I didn't expect to be asked 
to join the House of Lords. I thought that I had escaped frontline politics in the autumn of 2019 for the general election. I was planning on a life outside and then the Prime Minister phoned me on the Monday morning after the election and said, look, Nikki, I don't want to have a reshuffle. Will you go to the House of Lords? Will you carry on being Culture Secretary for you know, a number of weeks uh, until you know, I do decide to make some changes to government? So how could I say no? Absolutely, <laughs> when it comes from number 10. Uh, when I was coming into the House of Lords, people mentioned but it was on the horizon. Well, it'll be a bit of a sleepy environment. It'll be nothing like the House of Commons uh, and you'll not enjoy it. Tell me, <laughs> what is the feature of the House of Lords for you? Well, I think it is the expertise of the members, uh, the very piercing questions that they they ask, um, the quality of the of the debates. I mean, I think probably, you know, both houses rose to the occasion when we paid tributes to uh, the Queen last year. But the um, recollections of members of the House of Lords from their time, you know, working with her, serving her, um, observing her at, uh, at events, but also just in, in debates and putting out amendments. And I think the big thing for me in the House of Lords, obviously what you don't have is the constituency involvement. I love being a constituency MP, but there is a certain amount of enjoyment in saying, actually, these are the issues I'm going to talk about because this is what I know about and I can hopefully make a big contribution to making sure we've got better legislation. And in every time I sit in the House of Lords chamber, even if it's just, you know, I'm, I'm here doing meetings, pop in, I learn something from people who are, who are speaking because they, are, they know about the field that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I'm not sure I'd agree with the, with the sleepy uh, description at all. I, 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 think it's pretty, it. I, think it's, I think it's pretty lively uh, at times. It just might be that the, the liveliness is perhaps you know, a little more um, uh, subdued perhaps sometimes than the rowdiness of the House of Commons. I would say more civil. More, more civilised, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> right, and that. But in terms of amendments, you mentioned uh, that issue, but you've already made your mark here on amendments. Tell me about that. Well, so one of the first things I did, and of course that was this is happening during lockdown when we were all doing it via Zoom, and you know I think just enormous credit as well to all of the House of Lords staff and authorities who rose to that occasion to make sure that we could carry on you know, contributing to legislation. So I put an amendment down to the Domestic Violence Bill, uh, which was about um, intimate image abuse, um, and that was passed with the support of you know we, we work with ministers, the support of the of the House that was important. Now I'm working on the online safety bill and um, to put down various amendments, including one in relation to violence against women and girls. We want the regulator Ofcom to have a specific code of practice on that. Uh, and I'm also working with uh, fellow peers from the fraud inquiry that I chaired last year on an amendment to the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, which we're also debating at the moment. And I think that just shows the power of, we had the inquiry, I was privileged to chair it, fantastic peers I got to work with. And again, that's a great thing to work with, you don't know. And then you come up with the inquiry report, you say, actually the law does need to be changed. We have an opportunity with this bill. We're all working together. We've picked up uh, amendments and issues from the House of Commons. And you know, I, I really hope that ministers will listen in the House of Lords. And I think by and large, ministers in the House of Lords work incredibly hard. They have to listen to what people are saying. The government doesn't have a majority and have to work very hard to make sure they find a way through with their legislation. If I remember correctly, in the 2019-21 session, uh, there were about 1,083 amendments uh, passed, mm -hmm. but only 83 were the result of divisions. So the rest were uh, as a result of committee stage, engagement with ministers and whatever. And I think that's what happened in your uh, domestic uh, abuse bill. Yeah. Can you 
take us through that because the House of Lords does have a real role and I think at times we're too shy yeah. to elaborate on that. I totally agree. With I mean, I think the House of Lords absolutely it has a major role in improving the laws that we that we pass as a as a parliament. I think because we have the time, but also, as you say, because the ministers in the Lords will engage often early and will continue the engagement with peers on on all sides to to come up with um, it could be it could be a compromise. Uh, it might not be that we get everything that we we absolutely want, but actually a you know a change in the law, a step forward, an improvement in in regulation based on experience, based on what we're hearing testimony from outside, from witnesses in the case of an inquiry. Um, and as I say, I think one of the great unsung uh, sort of groups of people are the House of Lords ministers because they have to cover everything within the departmental brief. Um, and they spend a lot of time engaging. And I think actually a lot of government departments and probably House of Commons ministers, it's all a bit of a mystery really, how the House of Lords uh, works. But the other thing of course is they can't guillotine business here in the same way. So of course, both sides work together to make sure people aren't sitting through the night on a repeated uh, basis. But the fact is actually you can have proper, lengthy, detailed debates. And I go back to the point about being asked difficult questions. Ministers can't get away in the House of Lords with trite answers or too many promises of future action because the peers won't stand for it. And I think that's a, that's a real service to the nation. You mentioned the Fraud Act, the House of Lords uh is really unique in being able to look back on acts and see how well they worked. Uh, you looked at the 2006 yeah. Fraud Act uh, in that. Uh, what were your conclusions on that? Because it was a very, very substantial report and I think very influential that the government have listened to that. Well, they have, and we're waiting for more to, to, to come. So um, I think the House of Lords, again, is unique in setting up you know, a number of special inquiries every year. So in this case, it was Lord Young of Cookham and Lord Vox who had put forward both a review of the Fraud Act 2006, but also the regulation of digital and online fraud. And I defy anybody listening not to have been the victim of some kind of attempted online fraud, whether it's a WhatsApp message or a, or a phishing message or an email that's trying to get the bank account details, probably in the last couple of months, actually. Uh, and so they were right to say, let's look at the Fraud Act 2006, which ultimately we concluded was in pretty good shape um, and uh, you know, isn't in need of substantial reform. But then the whole issue of online digital fraud, you know, the since we probably last looked at all of this, and for the police as well in the law enforcement agencies, the massive growth of social media platforms, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the telecoms companies for whom actually we're often we get these messages through, the internet services providers. You know, we often focus at the end of the, we, we called our report breaking the fraud chain because there is a whole chain from when people first encounter the messages of a fraud, right the way through to when they instruct their bank to transfer the funds to a fraudster who then whisks them away, probably overseas very, very uh, quickly. So we looked at the whole fraud chain and said the whole thing's got to be tackled. And as a result, we are now putting forward an amendment to the Economic Crime Bill uh, on failure to prevent fraud, that the corporate bodies should have responsibility. If people are using their services and those services are being used to perpetuate fraud, then those corporate bodies should have a responsibility and do all they can to make sure that that doesn't happen and they protect their, their users. And you know, we'll see where we get to. The government, interestingly, in the House of Commons conceded the failure to prevent offence in principle, but as ever, what will happen in the House of Lords are detailed meetings and negotiations almost with ministers about the wording of the amendment. Because hey, the government's very aware they don't have a majority. And particularly if you get the influential crossbenchers behind you, uh, you know, that, that really does count for a lot. But we try also, I think, in the House of Lords to do things on a, a very cross-party 
basis. I think that's much stronger if we can do that. Technology is increasing at a huge rate. And for me, even when I was chair of the Treasury Committee, the lag between appropriate legislation and being able to deal with issues was evident. For example, the Consumer Credit Act. I remember lobbying the government uh, at the time, just uh, after 2000, 2001, saying, look, we need to update this 1974 Consumer yeah. Credit Act before the internet. I think we, we did manage to achieve that, and I think it's the 2006 Act, but I don't think much has happened since then. What can Parliament do to be up with the game? Well, I think it's probably incumbent on all of us to make sure just actually that we are aware of all the different technologies. I mean, you know, one of the great things, again, about being a member of parliament in both houses is you have obviously a lot of people contact you. They've got their own agendas. But there are times actually we have the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology as well. You know, there are bodies that can actually hopefully train us and, and, and uh, make us aware of all the different technology and the way that it's being potentially used and, and abused. Um, and, and also, I think these special inquiries, I think, you know, a short, sharp inquiry uh, on whether a piece of legislation you know, needs to be updated. Um, it's amazing how people will, by and large, want to give evidence to a House of uh, Lords or House of Commons you know, inquiry. Um, and I suppose the other thing is, and this is a big debate in the House of Lords, which is actually um, how much discretion do you give to ministers or regulators so that they can update practices without necessarily having to return to Parliament for an update of the whole law. And so that's quite a big controversial thing. I think one of the things actually we probably are going to have to consider, there is already a committee that looks at the different regulators. But as the regulators become more important, for example, Ofcom getting more powers under the Online Safety Bill, I would say there's an even greater role actually for members of the House of Lords, um, you know, without fear or favour, reliant on their sort of experiences, to actually be looking very hard at how the regulators are carrying out their, their activities. And I think, again, that's something we can do for the, for the country. When I was Senior Deputy Speaker, I was charged with the review committees mm -hmm. and it was implemented just uh, as I left office. One of the committees that we established was the Industry yeah. and Regulatory Committee. And these were the very points yeah. that we were making. But I always took great pride in the select committees here because uh, their findings were pretty profound and deep and mm. cross-cutting, mm. uh, which is not the same as with House of Commons, where they mirror the departments yeah. on that. But some would say, well, what use is it just producing committee reports and they go nowhere? Your experience as a cabinet minister, uh, your experience in the Commons and the Lords, what effect do these select committee reports have well, they often shine a light, and sometimes it can be an uncomfortable light if you're in the government, on an issue that you know needs to be dealt with. Um, I, I, th I think still there's probably a little bit too much defensiveness in government, both ministers and officials sometimes, about why is this outside body telling us about our, our area and everything else. I think we need to break that down a, a little bit. So I think it's incumbent on committee chairs and committee members to work with, with ministers um, and to say to them, look, this report is coming, this is what it's, it's saying, I think this is how it will help you and your agenda, for example. So we know that the government has been working on a fraud strategy. Uh, one of the things we recommend is that fraud should become part of the strategic policing requirements. So the government makes it clear to police forces this is important. That has now happened. Fraud is getting a mention in the strategic policing requirement published last month. We're waiting for the fraud strategy. We've got this failure to prevent. I think one of the, the, the challenges sometimes for committees, and I've, you know, we've both been select committee chair, you produce a report, get some coverage, and then you're on to the next thing. 
Again, I think the House of Lords has got, perhaps hopefully its members got a bit more time to keep the pressure up. So although the fraud inquiry was ended in November of last year, the reason we're all working together on the amendment, the reason I'm still doing talks about the fraud inquiry, I'm still working, I'm chairing a roundtable tomorrow on it, um, is because you've got to keep the pressure up. And we went back to, we talked about persistence at the beginning, and I think actually persistence in government and persistence in politics is, a, is you know, very much needed. Because you do get change, but often takes quite a long time. And that's where, again, where I think the Lords, because you're not worrying so much about you know, elections and being elected, you can think longer term. And it may well be that we might come back, you know, somebody might say in five years' time, can you just revisit that inquiry again and find out what happened? Uh, absolutely. And again, from my time as chair of the Treasury Committee, I always used to say, get it on the record. Yeah. So the record is really very important because it can help. And I feel that the House of Lords has uh, a channel to the public, to society as well, which hopefully government listens to. Is that the case, as Secretary of State? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, again, you know, you, if your Lords Minister comes back, if you've got a piece of legislation or a regulation will pass, your Lords Minister comes back to you as a Secretary of State and says, we've got trouble in the House of Lords because they're not going to, you know, accept it as it's currently drafted. You have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I do think that actually, I mean, so again, one of the things is members of the House of Lords are meant to be, many of them doing other things. I have a portfolio of interests outside. And so actually, you know, talking to people, uh, listening to different, you know, it's a business or, or another charity you're involved with or a university, perhaps, or whatever it might be. The whole point is to keep bringing that experience back and say, but this is the way it's working in the real world. You know, this is the way it's perceived. This is the way we're perceived. Actually, what can we do to change that? How do you temper the frustration of your former colleagues who are secretaries of state and other places saying, how's the laws? It's a pain in the neck. It's just holding up our stuff. You know, how do you charm them? Well, I say that actually I think, well, a better legislation. I mean, I say, look, you know, you should be, you should be nice to the, to the House of Lords because actually, again, you might find your legislation gets, gets, uh, gets stuck uh, or even doesn't make it onto the statute book. Um, and, and I think probably um, those of us who have been in both houses are in a unique position to be able to, to talk to, to ministers, you know, of all hues and just explain, you know, this is the way that the, the Lords works and actually it's, it's important. And the government often will use the House of Lords to put amendments down again things that have come up in this course of scrutiny of legislation, things that need to be improved, you know, they will put the amendments down. So I think it serves a purpose for the government as, as well, actually. I remember being a whip in the Labour government in the 1997 on, and sitting in the mm. whip's office and looking at one bill, I better not <laughs> mention the bill because I'd embarrassed uh, the Secretary of State, who's now here. <laughs> uh, but we were looking at bills saying, Clause 13, that won't get through the House of Lords. Clause 21 won't get through. And we had a heck of a time trying to convince the Secretary of State that they really had to sharpen up yeah. before it. But they didn't sharpen up before it. And sure as heck, Clause 13, yeah. Clause 21 proved problematic as a result uh, of that. So I had empirical experience of that. <laughs> they might learn the next time exactly, round exactly. when, when that's pointed out to them they might say yeah actually I better I better listen to that <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> Covid and Covid yes. memorial and you're chairing the committee really serious uh, issue and you know very much a mm. privilege for you to do yes. that and very appropriate tell us about that Yes, yeah, so I was asked by um, the then Prime Minister uh, in July of last year to chair the UK Commission on Covid uh, commemoration of course we're sitting here and just across the river is the National Covid Memorial Wall, which I had the privilege of 
for visiting, which is uh, maintained by uh, a group of ex extraordinary uh, volunteers uh, who've shown the most remarkable resilience, all of them bereaved in some way because of COVID. Um, we've had uh, commissioners, there are 11 commissioners, including me, um, from appointed from across the United Kingdom, all sorts of different walks of, of life as well. Um, the report is, is actually uh, finished and due to be uh, sent to the government by the end of this uh, month and we wait uh, the government to publish it and to obviously uh, respond. Um, I mean, I think, so the, the thing that somebody said to me when we were going around the, the different meetings, we, we had a lot of stakeholder meetings and surveys, was everybody lost something. Uh, and so whether it was uh, obviously a, a loved one, and of course there were people who died in the pandemic, not of COVID, but perhaps of something else. But, you know, interestingly, so, so the Bishop of London, a member of this house, has also been chairing something called the UK Commission on Bereavement. And I think the loss of those bereavement rituals, the things that we take for granted, able to say goodbye to loved ones, not happening, has really just, you know, obviously added to the trauma that people suffered. But equally, we're also tasked with remembering frontline key workers, uh, the achievements of UK science, and I think the sort of community and volunteering spirit. And again, you know, we're all aware in our own communities of how everybody pulled together to help to help others. So we're going to come up with a range of, of different uh, recommendations. We can't do one recommendation would not cover that broad uh, remit. I think one of the other things that, again, perhaps as a former constituent MP, you won't be surprised at, which is um, when people have something traumatic happen to them, of course they want that to be talked about by the government, remembered, but they also want to stop other people going through it as well. So some of this was about how can we prepare and be resilient for future pandemics or natural hazards. So one of the things, for example, you know, UK science, obviously massive contribution with the vaccines. How can we support that uh, so that actually there is preparation already going into building national resilience uh, in the future? And how do we talk about this period of history? And of course, people have got mixed views. Some people just want to move on. Uh, some people can't move on. Uh, some people, of course, have got long COVID um, or immunocompromised, so they're still shielding. Um, so it, it's been very humbling, actually, to do all the meetings. You know, my commissioners have been brilliant um, and I very much hope the government will accept the, the recommendations and we've done justice to what we've been told by the brief families. Only a month or so back, I had a Lord Speaker's lecture and Professor Sharon Peacock mm. addressed us and she right at the forefront of the vaccine and uh, the genomic chains yeah. as a world expert on it. But what's come up is the need to support science still and have a long-term view because this isn't the, the last pandemic yeah, and also have a global view what advice do you have uh, for society for government on that nikki well we talked didn't we a bit about digital capabilities you know, here and outside i think there's also um i think probably we have a lack of scientists of all sort of backgrounds in both houses of parliament uh, so I think that, you know, we again, in trying to encourage people to come forward, it'd be great to have more people. Well, there's quite a, a quite representation a in the House of Lords. I mean, even the cross benches, there's, yeah. uh, you know, well over 20 uh, scientists. But in the House of Commons, and by the way, I was a scientist. <laughs> uh, it was pretty miserable, about yeah. 6 or 7%. Yeah. And I think, so, so more than that, but I think then an appreciation of, uh, of science more broadly uh, in, um, in society I mean, outside, I'm on the board of the Science Museum Group, which obviously looks to build science capital. Um, and for many young people, their first encounter with science will be visiting a museum, perhaps doing something through school. Um, but I'm also chair of the Careers and Enterprise Company. Um, and, you know, the more that we can help to explain to young people uh, why what they're learning in school 
actually could lead to particular careers, which, which are literally life-saving. And sometimes life-saving, not just in this country, but around the globe, as the vaccines were. And I'd have thought this is the opportunity, actually, to, to really invest and say, how can we pick out the brightest and the best and have, whether it's a fellowship or a scheme or whatever, to make sure that uh, UK science is seen to be. I mean, the Prime Minister is committed and wants the UK to be a science superpower, um, but you've got to go right back to inspiring. Um, and again, I'm sure as constituency MPs, we've all been part of local competitions, getting young people inspired by, by science. You have to keep that going. Um, it's very easy for young people to, um, to lose that sense of awe and, and wonder and wanting to do things. So how do we keep that going? How do we build all of our own science capital though? You know, however old we get, having that curiosity, listening to people when they're talking you know, in, the, in the House of Lords about their experiences, all of that is very important. Yeah, you've done many things and you're still doing an awful lot outside and you're attending the House of Lords. Some people would think that if you're a member of the House of Lords, you've got to be here full time. Well, that is certainly not the case. And I think you're illustrating that point for me that you're doing so many things uh, in society, but coming along here and still engaging. Uh, how, how can you articulate that more so that people get the message about uh, the purpose of the House of Lords and what we're here for? Well, I think these sorts of, uh, hopefully, conversations are, are, are important and people understanding. And I think probably for those of us who are doing other things, I think where we can explain actually how what we uh, then have the opportunity to do in the, in the House of Lords can, can, can assist organisations. We can bring the benefit of those discussions we have outside back into to help to improve the, the debate and the scrutiny that's then really inform uh, debate and scrutiny that's, that's happening uh, here. Uh, I think it's very important. I, I think one of the great things we need to emphasise is that exactly what we want. We want people who are hopefully busy doing other things will bring their experiences in. You know, we, we shouldn't be a full-time uh, house. You know, we are different from the House of Commons um, and we should absolutely make the most and capitalise on that, on that difference. We, we offer something completely unique, I think, to, uh, to society. Um, and, and we all need to be better about our... I mean, you know, there are, there are fantastic programmes that the House of Lords does about going into schools, going into colleges, um, and people are always interested. And when you start talking about what you actually do in the House of Lords, people are really quite, I think, um, amazed sometimes, interested about what you can do. And things, as you said, like the fraud inquiry, again, you know, if we can get certain key amendments through that actually make a real difference to people's lives, uh, you know, if we can get the tech platforms, the big ones, to really think about the misogynistic content uh, and we're recording this you know obviously when the metropolitan police are under a lot of criticism for for that but you know if we can really tackle misogyny in society on our social media platforms and show the house of lords led the way on that then hopefully that resonates with with people outside i had louise casey in this very Absolutely. office just a couple of weeks ago and she's done a fantastic yeah. job on that and it's out just just now on that what message do you have for police forces, for society, for how they go about protecting women and uh, domestic abuse and others? Because I know you've, you've always mm. been very interested mm. in that. Well, as a former minister for, 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 for women, I, mean, I think Louise Casey has done a tremendous job. And I think, again, you know, actually a member of this house, she's, she's produced a series of different reports. She's a very trusted uh, voice and she gets to the heart of, of, a, of an issue. The first thing is to admit that there's a problem. So actually, you know, whether it's a police force, whether it's another institution, you have to admit there is an issue. Um, and then actually think, you know, how are we going to find the bad apples? How are we going to, you know, weed them out? Um, and other people have got to be empowered. So, you know, allyship, male allyship, 
to help tackle violence against women and girls is really, really important. You know, I often found, actually, when I wanted to do something, it wasn't until I spoke to perhaps a minister who had daughters, and I would say, do you want your daughters to have to deal with all of this? Um, actually, that then changed the mindset. And it was like, no, I don't want them to have to deal with misogynistic you know, content or, or, or you know, potential abuse and everything else. That then would change the way that they looked at things. So I think making it real for, 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 for people. But I'm afraid to say, I think that the, you know, the Metropolitan Police have got a long, long way to go to rebuild the confidence of women and girls in, in London. Um, as Louise Casey said, everyone should report everything that happens to them. Um, but you know the way individual officers conduct themselves every time they come into contact with a member of the public, particularly on an issue as serious as sexual abuse uh, or, or, or rape, uh, will make a tremendous difference in rebuilding that trust. The Commissioner was in Parliament a month or so back mm. talking to Mr Speaker myself on it, and these are the very points that we raised mm. with him. But the issue of culture, uh, culture is a process which takes a long time uh, in, in that and it needs leadership. What's your definition of leadership given the various positions that you've held and still hold? I think it's about having a clear uh, set of priorities, a clear strategic vision, and then actually being able to communicate that and to take people with you. Um, and listening. Listening is incredibly important. You know, it's not all about just saying, I know it all, and this is the direction we're going in. It is saying, no, I'm clear about this is where I think we should head. But then actually, when you get the feedback, actually saying, that's a really good point, And we should just adjust this because actually I didn't think about that viewpoint. And now I should. Um, so and you're right. I think I think, look, we have a debate about there's culture in Parliament. Um, there's you know, leadership uh, uh, here, leadership in government, leadership of the country, um, all tremendously important. And again, it go back to talking to young people about their future options around jobs and careers, you know, the role modelling is phenomenally important. So again, everything that we do uh, as, as members of, of the House of Lords, you know, being what we are, you know, being monitored and watched, all of that we do is really important for the tone we set. So you would distinguish between hearing and listening and you would advocate a culture of encounter, is that? Yeah, I think yes, I think, well, and I think people should always know that they can talk to uh, leaders and th there will be times when you can't take on you know and, and as we know you'll get lots of conflicting views but I think engagement um, many 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 years ago when I was first a candidate in Loughborough one of my wise old councillors said to me never underestimate the power of explaining why you've made a decision um, and often actually when you explain something you might say I can't do everything that you've asked me for but this is why and this is what I've done about it actually people by and large are reasonable enough to understand that. It's the lack of engagement, the lack of listening and hearing what people are saying to you that I think gets people so frustrated. I think it was Woody Allen said, it, success is 90% turning yes. off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, Nikki, uh, thanks for such a really enjoyable conversation and instructive educational. But let's finish on a bit of a lighter note. You and I have run marathons. And I have done more than half a dozen marathons in my life. I did the London Marathon. And on one occasion, it was a very hot day. And about five kilometres, miles out, I felt my hamstring going. Uh, but some kind soul uh, spectator at the side shouted that they'd ointment and they would rub my hamstring. And I 
decline saying no it, it would probably appear in page one of the sun <laughs> the next day so i hobbled along to the finishing line any, any funny ones for you well i did the london marathon in 2013 so you've done definitely more i've done one marathon i've done a few half marathons and um i thought i was doing pretty well and i passed ed ball somewhere in docklands um and i don't quite know how but but as i got to the end um literally as we're running up the mall uh, and they said, oh, congratulations to Ed Balls for finishing. And I thought, how did he overtake me? I didn't see him. And then my five-year-old son was watching and he said, well done, Mum. He said, but you were overtaken by a beer bottle and a fire extinguisher. <laughs> Very good. Oh, well. Okay. No beer bottles in here. And hopefully, I know I'm joint chair of the Admiral Commission. No fire, no fire extinguishers required. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. We'll be back soon with more from the UK Parliament's Second Chamber. Thank you.